Welcome to the Genesis Church Podcast. We'll have more information at the end of the podcast, but for now, please enjoy this week's teaching. The scripture this morning is from the first chapter of Luke, verses 1 to 23. Since many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those from the beginning, by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, as one having a grasp of everything from the start, to write a well-ordered account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have a firm grasp of the words in which you have been instructed. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was descended from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. Once, when he was serving as a priest before God during his section's turn of duty, he was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord to offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. With the spirit and power of Elijah, He will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How can I know that this will happen? For I am an old man and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering at his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them, and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was ended, he returned to his home. During the week of Thanksgiving, my family retreated to a cabin in Motley overlooking the Crow Wing River. This cabin is sacred not just to my family, but the Williams family, who see it as more than their family cabin, but an offering to their community and a continuation of their father's legacy, one of radical hospitality rooted in his love for Jesus. 
I stood outside in 20 degree weather with a blanket draped over my shoulders and I drank coffee watching the river move slowly. I watched the sunrise on agenda-free days, many of them, that I got to just stand there and greet Sister Sun and welcome her light. One particular morning while praying, as the sun rose and the darkness enveloping the river slowly transformed into a colorful sunrise, I was struck by the truth that God's love pierces the darkness of my insecurities. It was holy and it was joyful. My adult and teen children invited their friends to join us for a Wednesday night where we had our official feast because we had everyone together, so it made sense to do Thanksgiving on Wednesday when the table was full as opposed to Thursday when some were, were gone. Um, and they all came, and I handed out to each one of them black Santa PJs to wear to the table. And my son's girlfriend made a cocktail for us of rosemary syrup that she made herself and white wine. And we all agreed that the orange bourbon ham was better than the turkey. And we all had extra helpings of that 1950s staple of green bean casserole. And it was holy and it was joyful. And then afterwards, I played Catan. Well, they played Catan. And I, who admittedly is tenderhearted and incredibly sensitive to competition, cuddled on the couch with my dog while I served as the game time DJ. We listened to the Moana soundtrack and then the electronic music of early 2000s that my kids said, this is the music of my childhood. Thank you. And then so, so, so much Taylor Swift. It was holy and it was joyful. It was also terrifying because I knew I couldn't live there in that sacred, simple, sweet place. Motley is not our home. Our home is here with jobs and college applications and cats that get the zoomies at 2 a.m. and disorganized cabinets and toilets that I have to scrub myself and making decisions like whether or not I should spend money to get braids to reduce my daily hair stress or, and so many other things. My life is beautifully and brutally full. It is not an understatement to say that my life can invoke weariness. I think this is typical of many of our lives in this modern moment. Our access to information wearies our collective minds, our empathic awareness of intangible stressors, stressors like neurodiversity or disability, chronic hidden pain, racism, sexism, ableism, all the isms. They weary our collective heart. Our vulnerability to systems like rise in cost of living and expensive healthcare wearies our collective body. It seems to me we all need a river retreat, but we also need to know how to re-enter, to hold on to the holy and let the light break into our darkness to embrace joy. So this begs the question, how does a weary world rejoice? And if Jesus is the source of our joy, how do we make room for him in the midst of all of this? In our reading today, we meet Zechariah. Zechariah was a priest in the lineage of Aaron. And because of his family, Zechariah was called by God to serve as a spiritual leader in his community. And so for all of his life, he was prepared to do the holy work of connecting the people to God and God to the people. He interceded. He taught about the law. He encouraged faithful obedience. His guidance was important to help them learn how to listen to God's voice. 
And he married a woman who not only understood but shared the call, maybe not officially, but in spirit and in companionship, Elizabeth. And at this moment, she's my favorite woman in the Christmas story. Sorry, Mary, mother of Jesus, you will get your time. She too came from a priestly family, which meant that she understood the demands of her husband. She knew the reasons he did what he did, and she knew how his ministry worked. She understood the tasks and obligations, and she supported him in his work. And having known that I was called to ministry at a young age and then marrying a man called to ministry, I can totally relate. And the scripture tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were faithful Faithful to God, faithful to the law of the covenant. They did what a good priestly Jewish couple would do. They were blameless, meaning there was no fault in them. This couple had faithfulness and a deep trust in God. And yet for all of their faithfulness and all their trust in God, Luke tells us they had no children. And I can imagine that they felt a deep betrayal and viewed it as a sign of God's distancing himself from them. You see, because in the Jewish mind, if a woman was unable to bear children, she was seen as being punished by God. Because of the patriarchal society, the thought that the problem could be with the man was never a question. It was always the woman. The woman did something wrong. And so Elizabeth is childless and wondering, is God angry with me? So we have the weariness of their lived experience in direct contrast to their desire to know and be known by God. Their desire for family and legacy and joy of passing on their values to the next generation was not being fulfilled. The weariness of a dream unfulfilled. This is an incredibly painful situation for them, no doubt. And I imagine that Zechariah and Elizabeth prayed and prayed and continued to serve faithfully and wondered why. Why can't we have children like anyone else? They experienced the weariness of trying again and again, and every month Elizabeth is not pregnant. I wonder how many years of waiting and hoping and becoming discouraged. In our reading, Zechariah says we are well along years, so they are weary yet faithfully showing up, hoping upon hope for a miracle and a story of redemption. And so it comes time in all of this weariness and all of this waiting that it's Zechariah's turn, his lineage turn to come and serve in the temple. And as was their custom, they threw lots to see which priest would enter the Holy of Holies and the lot fell to Zechariah. And so he enters in and meets Gabriel representing God. And the angel says, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. And he will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. Gabriel offered an invitation to rejoice for this weary, weary couple An invitation to Elizabeth to make room for God's delight and to meet her in her despair. And an invitation to Zechariah to rebuild his trust in God after years of praying and not knowing if God heard him. And what was Zechariah's first response? It was one that was typical of the weary. How can I be sure of this? He says this showing his disbelief and fear of being fooled. I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. He says this to try to explain it away or minimize the possibility of this good. He could not, would not allow himself to accept the gift of the moment, the joy of God with him in the holy of holies. 
what Zechariah was feeling was foreboding joy. Foreboding joy is a term coined by researcher and author Brene Brown, capturing the complex interplay between gratitude and fear, between celebration of blessings and the haunting sense that they might be too good to be true. In a world that often emphasizes the pursuit of happiness, the idea of foreboding joy invites us to reflect on the emotional tapestry of our lives. It challenges us to consider how we approach joy and navigate that tension between acknowledging our blessings and the lurking fear that they may be fleeting. Consider the example of a new parent holding their newborn child. The overwhelming joy of the moment may be accompanied by a subtle fear, a fear of the uncertainties that lie ahead, a fear of not being enough, or fear of the unknown. This intersection of joy and vulnerability is where foreboding joy takes root. And I think of Zechariah's response to something good, and I think of the morning of our last full day at the cabin, and I was laying on the couch watching TikToks on how to manage end-of-vacation depression. <laughs> I was literally still in my autumnal version of paradise. I had just watched the Keira Knightley version of Pride and Prejudice for the second time, because why not? Because cabin life, and I had a major aha about my next book project, and here I was anticipating the heart of going back to my life. I even thought, well, this is nice, but there's no guarantee our family can afford to come back next year. Foreboding joy. Brene Brown says of foreboding joy that when we feel joy, it is a place of incredible vulnerability. It's beauty and fragility and deep gratitude and impermanence all wrapped up in one experience. We can't tolerate that level of vulnerability. Joy actually becomes foreboding, and we immediately move to self-protection. It's as if we grab vulnerability by the shoulders and say, you will not catch me off guard. You will not sucker punch me with pain. I will be prepared and ready for you. So how does a weary world rejoice? We don't. Our weariness opens the door for foreboding. We can't believe something good can or would happen to us, so we reject it. Much like Zechariah, the, the angel of the Lord brought joyful news to him, and all he could do was focus on what could or would derail the goodness. That sounds like a trauma response to me. It sounds like a coping mechanism to me. It sounds like a protection from increased weariness to me. So how does a weary world rejoice? With guarded hearts and skeptical minds. The weary forebode. We do not let the joy in. And so we see this in Zechariah, but we also see the Spirit of the Lord make a remarkable alternative for that foreboding joy, offering him a gift to tend to that foreboding, to ease that weariness, to heal the hurt. Silence. In my earliest discipleship through this story, it was a cautionary tale. Believe God or else. But what I find so interesting is that while he was given the gift of silence because he could not believe, that as he entered back into his community, one, the very community that viewed him as being um, separated from God or punished from God, as he entered back into his community with this new silence, 
They didn't rebuke him or chastise him or even worry on his behalf that he was even punished more by God because he was unable to speak. No, they realized that he saw a vision. Collectively, they proclaimed, you, Zechariah, are favored by God because God has revealed wisdom to you. Maybe the silence was a gift. Trappist monk and pioneer in the worldwide Christian contemplative movement, Thomas Keating says, silence is God's first language. Everything else is a poor translation. And in order to hear that language, we must learn to be still and rest in God. What if God was holding silence for and with Zachariah? Therapists often use this technique of holding silence during therapeutic sessions. It's an intentional pause to allow their client the space and opportunity to reflect on their thoughts and emotions without immediate influence of verbal interaction. For me, when I've experienced silence in therapy, it's served as a catalyst for deeper self-exploration. I could access my innermost feelings and insights more easily, and that can move me along in my healing journey. My godmother is a therapist, and one thing she values above all is to demonstrate a profound respect for her client's process and to foster a non-judgmental environment where they can feel safe to explore and express their thoughts at their own pace. She holds silence for this. So what if the silence was this, was this space that God, our wonderful counselor, needed to minister to Zechariah's pain? In spiritual direction, while we're not therapists, we utilize a similar technique because silence serves as a sacred, profound medium for that exploration and connection to the divine. When I come into my direction sessions with my director all super hot and chatty, she often leads me into some time of silence to settle down and recalibrate my awareness of God's presence. As a spiritual director, I do this too with my directees. I purposefully embrace silence as a means of creating a contemplative space where they can delve into the depths of their own spiritual journey. Because what, why, what I have found and what I have learned in my training is that the absence of words honors the richness of nonverbal communication. It recognizes that the divine often speaks in whispers that are best apprehended in the hushed moments of stillness. Silence and spiritual direction becomes then a shared pilgrimage, an invitation for both the director and the directee to listen attentively to the rhythm of the soul's yearning, allowing for a deeper spiritual insight and a more profound connection with divine mystery. So then what if the silence given to Zechariah was not a punishment, but a trauma-informed invitation from the divine to worship to be protected, and to nurture joy. I often think of the many times Jesus healed someone and said, tell no one. Sure, part of that was strategic to prolong his ministry as much as possible, but I wonder if he knew that the healed person needed the holy pause between receiving a gift for themselves and then sharing it with their community. They needed that space because the Spirit was about, to, was about the work of healing their heart and soul just as completely as Jesus healed their bodies. I believe Elizabeth and Zechariah's weariness was healed in the sacred bubble of a loving God holding silence with them. I want my prayer life 
to be one of pondering in the presence of God, of holding silence and being healed of my weariness so that I can embrace joy. So maybe for these weeks of Advent, I will reject the hustle and expectations of processing, of figuring everything out, and embrace the quiet work of pondering. Zechariah's story teaches us that Advent, this season of waiting and expecting and preparing our hearts for Jesus, is the season for pondering and not necessarily processing. I think this was important for Zechariah. And I wonder what obligations he would have felt that he needed to fulfill to his community if he could speak about the visitation from the moment he left. I wonder how the silence allowed him the space to say no, to stay in that bubble. I'm sure that these obligations would have been good, but they sure would have gotten in the way of him being transformed and healed from a weary person to a joyful parent. Catholic priest and founding member of the Contemplative Outreach Spiritual Network, Carl Arrico, says, that transformation is the process of God recreating our very self. The divine physician is performing deep spiritual surgery on us. The surgery is getting to the root of the stuff inside of us and prevents us from seeing, that prevents us from seeing and hearing the gospel. And all of the phases of transformation are not done through our strategies. They are done to us because we are open to remaining in the presence of God. This is a season for pondering and not processing. So this is how I'm going to ponder and not process this Advent season. This is how I'm going to practice silence. I'm going to get up when the house is quiet, and I'm not going to put on my AirPods and turn on my get ready for my day playlist and bop around the house doing all the chores. I'm going to wrap myself in a blanket and take my coffee and stand outside and just sit in the silence. I'm going to, at the end of my day, light a candle and just sit and let it burn. Set a timer for three minutes and watch it. And remember, remind myself that the presence of God is as close to me and burns as brightly as this candle. If I'm feeling, you know, kind of chic and like I just want to spice it up a little bit, maybe it'll be a scented candle, you know? but I'm going to embody my silence. I'm going to create my bubble. Maybe when my playlist ends in the car and I have maybe five minutes before my destination, I don't pull over or get to the stop sign and turn on another song just so that I have some music between that ending and the next thing, the place when I get out of my car. Maybe I'll just sit in that silence. So what can you do to ponder? this Advent? Where do you feel weary? And might the Spirit be inviting you to create a bubble of silence and space for your healing? Because this is my prayer for all of us. And if you want to join with me in a posture of prayer, I will pray for us. Lord, help us to make room for Jesus so that we can quiet the chatter in our minds that perpetuate foreboding joy. And may we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Lord, help us to make room for Jesus, 
and accept that God is good and for us and always aware of our weariness because we don't have a high priest who cannot empathize with us. Lord, help us make room for Jesus by embracing the vulnerability of joy, knowing that Jesus, joy of humans desiring, came that we would have life and have it to the full. May you meet us in our spaces of vulnerability. May you transform our weariness into delight. And may we sit in that bubble of healing and transformation that we can only find in your presence. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Genesis Church Podcast. Our teaching team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion. Creating opportunities for our community to respond from wherever they are in their faith formation. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary and a church calendar because they anchor us in something which can hold us no matter what life throws our way. Our goal is to become ordinary apprentices of Jesus who are learning to love God, ourselves, and others wholeheartedly. If you have any questions or would like to connect with us, please visit genesiscove.org.